Thank you all very much. Reforming giant and labour icon Paul Keating once said to me, son, leadership isn't about doing what's popular. Leadership is about doing what's right. Yeah. Essentially, he was telling me that leadership is about doing what matters. Blinking, you might have missed it. After a fortnight-long sprint of personality-focused ads for and against the incumbent Premier, Victoria has voted and Dan Andrews has led his party to a third consecutive election win, equaling former Premier Steve Brax's record. And in the aftermath of another mini-Dan slide victory, the focus has been shifted to the hastily rebuilding Liberal Party, with little to no attention given to what the continuation of the status quo might mean for Victoria and Victorians in the next four years. Today on Michaelson Alexander Explains, I'm joined by associate Jeremy Phillips-Yellen and communications specialist Matilda Finn to read the post-election tea leaves and explore what this election result and Labor's positivity plan might mean for the future of Victoria. Thank you for joining us today, guys. Hey, Gordon. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Gordon. So with only a handful of seats still in contention, Tilly, are you able to provide us an overview of the movers and shakers from the election results so far? Sure. Well, I think in terms of movers and shakers, I thought I'd go through the seats that swung in very different directions um, and I think paint a very interesting picture about the future of Victorian politics. Uh, so I think we can't start here without discussing Richmond. I think in the lead up to the election, there was not going to be a major shock that it's probably going to swing towards the Greens. Uh, it was previously held by Labor with a margin of 5.8% and just experienced a 12.9% swing towards the Greens. Um, it's funny to note that the electorate has significantly changed, the electorate of Richmond. So it was once called the epithet of struggle town. Uh, however, it now sits within an electorate that has is in the same sort of area that has the highest weekly medium personal income of Victoria, which I think is a significant change to what it was a couple of years ago. Um, the electorate also has the largest concentration of public housing in the state and more than 53% of the electorate live in rental homes. And the state average is actually 28.5%. So I think that tells you another interesting picture. You're also looking at about 48% of the population in Gen Y and 62.7% have no religion. And so we're seeing a very interesting uh, change in the electorate that I think is definitely having a profound impact on the election. I think that could be credited to why it swung to the Greens. Um, we should note that while the Greens did gain an extra seat in the lower house, this wasn't the green slide, as uh, Greens leader Samantha called it. And it's not uh, quite the victory they were expecting. They were expecting to claim about seven seats, and they're looking at claiming about four. Um, another interesting kind of mover and shaker in this election was Shepparton and Morwell, who actually swung towards the Nationals, um, showing a bit of a shift in what's happening in regional Victoria. So Shepparton went from, uh, had experienced, sorry, a 10.5% swing from the independent Susanna Sheed to Nationals' Kim O'Keefe. And in Morwell, we had a 9.1% swing to Nationals candidate Martin Cameron away from Labor's Kate Maxfield. Um, so I think that might have been an unexpected change. And I think that we're definitely seeing a move away from the kind of Labor, Liberal preferred um, seats in regional Victoria. Um, and the final thing I wanted to mention, and this is not a seat per se, but it's just there's some interesting candidates coming through that I think are indicative of movers and shakers towards the future of Victorian politics and what the, dire and the direction it's heading in. Um, so we've got this eight in the seat of Melbourne uh, for the lower house district, sorry, 
we had an 18-year-old Bakinji woman, Layla A. Samari, um, who was endorsed by the Indigenous Aboriginal Party of Australia. Um, and I think, first of all, to point out as an 18-year-old running in this election is pretty astounding, and she received next to no attention in the media or an analysis in the lead-up to polling. Um, so Layla wanted to do join the race to be a voice for Indigenous youth. Um, she's what's referred to, and this is what she calls herself, I didn't come up with his name, as a school refuser, uh, just someone that does not fit into the mainstream schooling system who uh, is forced to drop out because they don't really uh, conform to the usual style of schooling that we sort of see in Victoria, and particularly because we're an education state. I think this is quite interesting. Um, so she basically said that, there needs to be alternatives to the way that we approach schooling. It needs to be more empowering. It needs to be more flexible in the way that we teach. And she said that a lot of Indigenous kids are dropping out of school and falling into these catchments where they're quite isolated. They're kind of going into a life of uh, experiencing a lot of mental health issues, crime and drug use. So I think it was quite amazing to see this young girl come into politics with such a broad-minded view of what she was trying to achieve. And she's from Mordura as well, and she'd mentioned how she wanted to see more mental health services and drug health and drug use services in regional Victoria that actually resemble what's being provided in Melbourne. And um, so I think a bigger question that comes out of Layla being in this election is, are we going to see more of these kind of progressive, innovative, very young thinkers into the next couple of elections? And personally, I think the answer is yes. I think we're seeing a massive shift towards more long-term thinking. These young people want to be engaged with politics. They're not very happy with the status quo. And I think Layla is the perfect example of maybe where the future of Victorian politics is going. On the back of that, obviously the, the lead into this election was how divisive the Premier Dan Andrews was. But Jeremy, does this result confirm that, that the Labor government now maintains a social licence to do what uh, they said on election night, and that is to do what it not, not necessarily is what is popular, but to do what matters. And uh, on the back of his explanation of people running, like, is that also following through to the voters as well? Are people now not so worried about populist policy, but also just policy that actually affects change? Uh, I think the short answer is yes. So I think the, the answer that the important work is being done and the community wants to continue to see it done, I think that's um, a fair takeaway from the election. I guess the question is, what is the important work and who gets to decide what that work is? And as a sub-question, you mentioned, Goro, that Andrews was or is a divisive leader. I wonder how divisive he is around dinner tables compared to advisive he's presented in headlines. So we know that the last few years have been permeated by pandemic and that's really flavoured the um, information that we're seeing on our uh, smartphones uh, in the headlines. But I wonder whether that's actually reflected in conversations people are having around the water coolers. I suspect that that's not the case. The sheer volume and the type of rhetoric we're seeing in the mainstream media, uh, I believe, and I think um, a lot of people um, that you speak to after the election, believe that's just not reflective of the audience anymore. It's a disconnect between the editorialisation and the broader thinking about Victorian public policy. So even if he was divisive, firstly, I don't think he's as divisive as being presented. Um, and secondly, I think the majority of the people just happen to be the quieter Victorians. We heard the term quiet Australians uh, when it came to the 2019 federal election. Scott Morrison was very fond of that phrase. I wonder if the quiet Victorians are those that actually secretly supported the work that the Andrews government was doing during the pandemic and that in fact it was some very 
loud noises coming from small groups within the Victorian community that made the headlines. And so I think a huge takeaway from the election is a, a disconnect between what we're hearing through our mainstream media outlets, be that private or publicly owned, and what the electorate feels. And I think that broader theme, a disconnection of the community from the election campaign is evident in how some of the votes have gone in those close seats uh, and also that we haven't actually seen much difference in terms of the majority government in power or the number of seats they have. So the status quo has been maintained and so I think um, this is the only litmus test that matters. It's the test that's held on polling day and uh, in recent years in the two weeks before. And the result was fairly convincing in favour of the Labor government. And it was run on a, a couple of keystone um, pillars of policy, which I'd like to discuss with you, the, basically the hot topics in terms of policy. Um, and the first one off the bat was, uh, as he was announcing his uh, election win, the uh, Labor crowd at uh, the Melgrave pub burst into the chant of SEC. And so with the return of the SEC, is the energy and resources sector in Victoria about to change astronomically in the next four years, do we think? Or will it take a far longer period of time than that? I think there'll certainly be a dynamic shift. I'm not surprised that Labor supporters were uh, cheering for a publicly owned um, energy provider. Uh, I think they've been waiting for that ever since the energy was privatised in Victoria um, in the government's conservative governments of the 90s. I, I think it's fascinating to see what steps um, the government takes forward from here. I think it'll be really interesting to see the mix of um, electricity and energy they put into the grid. They've said that they're looking to have the majority, if not all, of the public energy provider producing renewable energy. They've said they'll have uh, the major ownership stake in each of the different projects within um, the SEC plan, which is interesting. Again, they're talking uh, a lot about giving the power back to the people when it comes to decision-making uh, in the energy space. And I suppose what's fascinating about the SEC as a concept, and going back to our earlier conversation around what's popular and what's important, I think during the pandemic years, there was a disconnect between what is important work, often the important work that was being done was to keep people safe, and that meant restricting people's liberties. And so that inherently is unpopular on the surface. People come around to those decisions because they're for the broader good. However, once we move through to a, a less pandemic controlled environment, I wouldn't say post pandemic because I'm conscious that there is um, still significant impact that COVID's having on the community. But I think we're going to see a greater alignment of policy that is both important and popular. So we're looking at um, the SEC as a project. We're going to be looking at sort of different subsects of that project. So the first thing is the Labor government investing deeper into the renewable energy space. Not only is that important to make sure we have more renewables in our energy mix here in Victoria, but inherently we've seen that it's, that's going to be a popular policy as well. Where Labor have lost seats in this election, they tend in the major to have lost it toward more progressive parties. So we've seen the Greens have a bigger um, stack of seats in inner city Melbourne. And we've seen even some environmentalists uh, within the National Party get traction in the regions when it comes to uh, action on climate change. And so I think the SEC represents both important and popular work when it comes to action on climate change. Uh, Premier Andrews is talking about the jobs that we might be able to create through the SEC. I think the last figure that I saw um, Premier Andrews quote was 59,000 jobs statewide. That's going to be a popular policy if we can create 
that many jobs, especially when it comes to um, renewable energy. And so I think the SEC is going to cause a fundamental shift in the way the Victorians view um, their energy providers, especially in the final context, which is the price of energy. The SEC is designed to have a more uh, competitive marketplace and to have more energies in the mix. If consumers start to vote with um, their climate credentials and start to choose an energy provider that is putting uh, renewable energy in front of um, finite energy resources, then we're gonna see a movement with their wallet. So people will start purchasing their power from that provider. That will then force the private sector to make adjustments to their energy mix as well. And so in those three prisms, uh, the cost of energy, uh, where we're getting it from in terms of renewables, and of course the jobs that we can create, I think we see that these are important policy shifts but they will also be very popular. Yeah, I was going to also add that I think we were talking about this before, Jez, but the fact that this is going to really create or kind of spur into Dan Daniel Andrews' legacy as a premier, I think to bring back something that, you know, Jeff Kennett privatised in 1994, I believe, it's quite a miraculous thing to bring it back and be quite confident that it's going to work as well. I think he's covered to this, all guns are blazing, he's like, we're going to bring it back and it's going to work and it's going to bring down energy prices. And for the majority of Victorians, it's like, great. You know, we want to lower the cost to our pockets every day or every week that we're spending in bills and all those sorts of things. So I think in addition to this, then we're going to look at things like the Metro Tunnel Project and social reform and things like that. So I think it's going to be interesting over the next couple of years how Dan Andrews curates what his legacy is going to be. And I imagine the SEC is going to be a huge part of that. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Till. It's... Um it's, it's unlikely that governments get returned for a third term. It's very unlikely and unusual in Australia that they, re that they return for a fourth with the same leader in charge. So I wouldn't be surprised if Andrews sees out the four years. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised if he transitions out of leadership before that to set up the Labor Party for their 2026 election campaign. And I fully agree with you, Till, that a lot of the next few years will be focused on what is the Andrews Labor government's legacy. And I think there'll be a couple of large projects that look to sculpt, uh, sculpt the community here in Victoria for decades to come. And the SEC is going to be one of those. And so when we talk about all Victorians, that was the uh, major selling point of Dan Andrews' uh, acceptance speech was that regardless if you voted for him or not, he wanted these, his Labor government to uh, to govern for all Victorians. But we saw, as Tilly explained earlier, that there's been a, a split essentially with the inner suburbs starting to vote towards the Greens and the outer regional areas shifting back towards the Nationals. And so with this broadening gap between metropolitan and rural Victoria, how do we see the Labor Party actually fulfilling its promise to govern for all Victorians? Yeah, I think it's... Interesting, there's, uh, you know, the commonly held belief that uh, Labor as a, as a movement support um, the industrialised inner metropolitan areas. It used to be, of course, right around the CBD of major cities, but is now sort of moving towards the outskirts of the metropolitan area. But I think that might be the case in some states. I don't know if that's fully the case in Victoria. Uh, Labor has retained seats in Bendigo. It's retained seats in Ballarat. It's retained all of its seats in Geelong and surrounding areas, and it has significant representation from what we would consider to be um, regional Victoria. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the MPs that occupy those seats aren't junior MPs either. They're significant players, many of whom has have had ministries in previous Andrews governments and will have ministries 
in the incoming government as well. So that's the first thing. There is actually quite significant representation for Labor MPs in regional areas in Victoria. The second interesting thing, I think, is that we have a major event that's going to be held in regional Victoria uh, about the same time as the next election, which is, of course, the Commonwealth Games. So in pitching for the Games, Andrews was direct, saying the Games were going to be a celebration of regional Victoria. It's a, a conversation that Andrews has started with regional communities to make sure that they know that he is connected to their communities and wants to see as much development and progress in their communities as he does want to see here in metropolitan Melbourne. And so this conversation has started and will continue over the next few years, but the fascinating thing over the next four years will be twofold. One, the amount of infrastructure investment that will go into regional communities, and secondly, the speed with which that infrastructure will have to be rolled out. We will then, of course, at the end of it, have the pièce de résistance, which will be the Commonwealth Games, and along with the Games will come a huge spend in tourism and marketing for regional communities across Victoria. So Andrews has started that, that conversation. The investment will be um, really upscaled in the next four years. And of course, the major events to be held at the end will not only have a great injection of um, tourism into those areas, there'll be remnants of the event for many years to come. So there'll be state-of-the-art sporting facilities, which will set up regional communities to hold major sporting events uh, in the years and decades to come as well. And there'll be a huge coverage of regional Victorian communities that would usually be outshone by uh, the star of Melbourne. And the very final thing, if I can sneak one more thing in, is that we have heard some murmurs from the Nationals Party that they are not happy with the coalition as it sits. They're, they've made no secret about being less than impressed with the performance of the Liberal Party during the election cycle. Part of that is their movement towards the fringe in some policy areas, um, but also it's just the, the general lack of capacity for the Liberal Party to engage with the community and to reflect their values in their policy construction. So there is some suggestion that the Nationals might consider moving their party from the joint coalition opposition across to the crossbench. If they do that, what role will they start to play in policy construction? Will they be a bit more supportive of policy from the government? Uh, because they may see they've got greater scope to actually mould and shape that policy to include the values and interests of regional communities. That's, that's one way they might go. Um, but that would be a, a big move indeed, away from a coalition that's been in existence for a long time and a coalition that gives the Nationals Party the ability to govern when the, when the coalition opposition is uh, eventually elected to government. So interesting to see what happens uh, in that space uh, with the Nationals in, uh, in the election fallout. Uh, and then the last key pillar that basically the, both sides of politics have been talking about was the healthcare system that is clearly under huge duress in Victoria at the moment. Um, obviously, there's been an announcement of more training for nurses, of, of way more ambulances, again, to the raucous cheers of uh, Labor supporters. But, uh, Tilly, do you think this is now a, you know, a moment of hope coming out of the, out of the pandemic uh, politics and into more progressive politics that there's hope for rejuvenation of Victoria's healthcare system under a third-term Andrews government? I wouldn't call it a rejuvenation of the healthcare system. I think maybe a booster, to put it in line with COVID-19 vocabulary. One of the biggest determinants of people's decision on Saturday was healthcare, because ultimately it affects every single Victorian and you can't escape it. 
it's obviously going to be a very high on your priority list going into the election on Saturday. Um, it's like you said, Gordo, it's no secret that the health system was is currently and was during COVID-19 really struggling. It was staff shortages, lack of hospital beds, really alarming waits for elective surgery and even especially mental health services, which even now it's a six plus month wait to get into some kind of mental health service. Um, so as part of that, the Daniel Jews government went in to this election with a few big announcements. I'm not sure if they're actually going to fall through. Uh, sorry, follow through on them, but I think um, they're worth mentioning. So there was a five to six billion dollar upgrade and expansion promise to build two new hospitals, um, upgrading the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Royal Women's, and to open 20 new women's health care clinics inside hospitals. There was also mention of a five thousand dollar sign on bonus for nurses who start nursing from, I believe, next year over the next three years um, as a thank you for choosing public hospitals, uh, to put it in Dan Andrews words. Uh, however, a lot of people have been very quick to say, well, that's not really going to help the immediate shortage of staff. Um, and a lot of uh, nurses in particular are experiencing burnout. Um, and that really has not been addressed. So I would say that in terms of a rejuvenation, we're going to see a shift. Um, we are actually seeing, which is always interesting to note, applications for nursing and midwifery and not just coming from year 12 students are actually on the rise for the first time in a couple of years, um, which is quite unexpected. Um, the age covered this a couple of weeks ago that really um, piqued my interest. So it's going to be interesting to see if we can actually rejuvenate the system completely, maybe these numbers will continue to grow and those shortages might start to kind of balance out over the next couple of years. But yeah, I think I'd call it a little bit of a booster and we need to see if they actually follow through as well. The uh, Victorian Labor government under Dan Andrews has been the self-dubbed uh, most progressive state in in Australia. He said that uh, you know Massachusetts is the Victoria of, uh, of the United States, which is a very bold claim, but obviously feeling high on a, on a big win. However, with left-leaning minorities predicted to make up the balance of power in the upper house, so with the Greens, the Legalised Cambodian Party and the Reason Party, do we think that now Labor has the, not only the appetite but I suppose also the support to address the uh, more pressing issues around AOD, mental health, justice reform and even things that are, I suppose, less controversial like affordability and availability of, of housing? So I think the short answer is yes. They have the capacity to address those issues. The more pressing question, I think, is will they be high on the agenda? Will Andrews be looking to cover these issues first? And I think to what Tilly was mentioning before with healthcare reform, I think that's a far more pressing issue. We know that the healthcare system is under pressure at the moment. It, it was before the pandemic. It's been under pressure, extreme pressure for years, uh, and workforces are at breaking point. Uh, infrastructure has been neglected during the last few years as well. And so we saw during the election that there was huge commitments to the acute end of healthcare services. We saw big commitments to emergency services and in the main we saw huge commitments to hospital spend. But I think what is more challenging and what we've seen a little bit of an appetite for during the election is actually a um, resetting of the healthcare system in a big reformatory way. So there are voices out there that we've seen during the election campaign that are saying that we shouldn't miss the golden opportunity that we have to reset our healthcare system and reprioritize different sections that have been neglected um, when compared with the bright and shiny commitments that you can make to hospitals. We've seen the RACGP, the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, um, active during the Victorian election campaign. Uh, calling for greater focus on and support for general practitioners. 
So we know the GPs in Victoria are few and far between. They have huge wait lists when you get in to see a GP, you're there for 10 to 15 minutes by necessity because they need to move on to the next patient of the day. We've seen groups within the healthcare mix in Victoria forming coalitions to engage directly with government, calling for a redistribution of funds away from, not necessarily away from the acute end, at the acute end, but a sharing of those resources with the primary care settings. So we've seen groups from the community healthcare setting, the RACGP, we've seen other primary healthcare groups calling for an equal share of the funding because there's no way we can solve the issues we're seeing at the acute end if we don't start to treat patients earlier on in their healthcare journey. A patient's first interaction with the Victorian healthcare system, be it the federally funded system or the state funded system, it should not be at the emergency, it should not be at the acute end. We should be able to service our community here in Victoria in their communities, wherever they live, with healthcare professionals that are specialised in um, the type of healthcare that each patient needs. And we should be able to see them far earlier on in their healthcare journey so that we don't have patients uh, turning up to emergency departments as their first port of call because they're a long way down the journey. Their care is going to be um, really intense. Their healthcare outcomes will be worse. And for bean counters in government, it's going to be more expensive as well. So I think, yes, there's a greater capacity to do work in the progressive space. I think it's important that we look at the AOD and mental health systems because there are brilliant, there's brilliant work being done in both of those two sections of our healthcare setup, but those sections are particularly fragmented. They don't communicate well with one another in terms of their service provision. They don't communicate particularly well as a group to government as well. And so if we can build in some supportive infrastructure around the amazing work being done in the AOD space and in the mental health space, then we can hopefully begin to see some better outcomes for Victorians. The final thing I'll say is yes, there is a more progressive uh, government in Victoria, especially a more progressive upper house, but we also have a more progressive federal party of government than we've had for many years as well. So I think it's interesting to have a look at the policies that the Victorian government now look to approach and also how they work with the federal government in terms of looking to cost share those projects. There's going to be um, an ideological alignment that we haven't seen for um, the full period of the Victorian government. Um, and so there'll be capacities to take leaps and bounds in the next few years um, that potentially the Victorian government hasn't seen before. Tilly, you mentioned before that this third term allows Dan Andrews to build upon his legacy and obviously the big build is what's been mostly talked about and the uh, exit from the pandemic, uh, I suppose, status. But also what has been mentioned a lot this election campaign was the big debt that Victoria has as well. Um, do you see this government being able to balance those two things? Can they still, you know, go full steam into the big build and things like the suburban uh, rail loop, which will be probably Dan Andrews' biggest piece and legacy piece um, if he does pull it off? Um, or will there have to be a commitment to reducing the big debt that Victoria has at the moment? He's got a pretty miraculous opportunity or a pretty important opportunity in his third term to actually to keep progressing the initiatives that he started in his first and his second term. So if you look at something like the Metro Tunnel Project, that's been in the works for so long. I can't even I can't even say how long that's been going on. Um, so to have that actually happen, I think he's going to commit to some big builds. I think if you've got the Metro Tunnel Project, I think if you can get the SEC up and running, he's claiming that it's going to take all this money out of the private sector and boost it into the public sector. 
Um, I think it's going to be interesting, though, to see how the deficit, especially particularly in the state budget and the federal budget, how that actually plays out because we've got projections and then we've got actually what's going to happen, which are two very different things. Um, so I think for this, I think he's going to commit to what he already has committed to. I don't see any new big builds being announced because I don't think that's feasible. And I think the public reaction to that would be quite substantial. Yeah, it's interesting to see how budgets and budget deficits get in the way of uh, infrastructure spend. We know that um, budget and government debt uh, is very different to personal debt. Often um, the, the likening of the two is uh, a strong political tool, usually wielded by conservative parties to win elections. Um, and so potentially it is less of a factor in Victoria, which is uh, by all intents and purposes the most progressive state in terms of the way it's governed in Australia. We saw the opposition um, try and use debt as a tool during this election cycle um, unsuccessfully. So potentially uh, debt plays a factor in the decision-making, but I think uh, the Andrews government will be more focused on the legacy it can create with the tools at its disposal. And I think part of um, the picture in terms of their funding model will be deep engagement with the federal government. So the federal government has um, a finger in every pie in every state in the country in terms of improving the lives of Australians. It'll be down to the Victorian government's capacity to convince the federal government they want to invest in some of these large projects. Um, that will decide whether uh, they can get off the ground and, uh, and whether they impact the existing debt uh, in the Victorian bottom line. And on the back of that, Jeremy, we had uh, Dan Andrews compelling, I suppose, community groups and activists saying that this is the a prime opportunity with both Labor governments and the Victorian and the federal government um, of you know, setting yourself up for the, for the next decade. How does having a dual Labor government in both levels of, uh, of governance change how you might approach things in regards to government relations? Well, I think we have two future-focused governments. We have two governments at a state and federal level that are looking to create meaningful change that will service their communities, Australia One and here in Victoria, for decades to come. But they can't do it alone and they'll need the support of industry in order to A, be across all of the improvements that could be made and B, go about making those improvements. And so the most important thing for businesses, for not-for-profits, for non-government organisations, for peak representative bodies is to bring the key players from both jurisdictions to the table. Federal government decision makers, state government decision makers and help guide the way that they go about enacting their plans over the next two to four years, um, whilst both parties are in government, potentially um, more like six to eight years if those governments are then re-elected. Part of the problem that we have with our jurisdictional divides is that we don't have a clean line of sight as to decision-making from the state sector to federal and vice versa. And often we see a lot of duplication in services. Healthcare is a key one of those. The federal government invests heavily in um, healthcare provision, so does the state government. We saw during the federal election that the Labor Party announced urgent care clinics, um, which is a policy that they may have seen already in existence within the Victorian Labor Party um, because they have a very similar set of clinics being rolled out at the same time. And so it's the communication between those decision makers which is key, and that is the new element that we would encourage 
um, clients and, and everyone looking to engage with either state or federal government to include within the narrative that they bring to the table. Our clients work across those jurisdictions. They have to, by necessity, they're skilled at doing so. They understand the industry. They understand how they can get things over the line. They understand all the hurdles between them and progress. And they're going to be the key conduits for both state and federal government to be able to make the change they want to see. So I'd encourage them to, to create that narrative, to be the guide, to take the lead, in fact, bring policy changes to both sets of government at the same table and try and solve the problems together. And my final question to our round out this election podcast is to do with the other side of politics, the uh, the Liberal Party in Victoria and their dictator Dan and their smear campaign eventually uh, fell on deaf ears um, with the, the quiet Victorians voting with their, with their head and not with their hate, as uh, Dan said in his election speech. Uh, Tilly, do you think this will propel the Victorian Liberal Party and maybe the Liberal Party in general um, to approach their time in opposition with an increased focus on policy and not just mudslinging, as has been the case probably in the last two campaigns, both federal and state? I mean, going back to what I was saying before about, you know, younger voters and younger thinkers who are very progressive and want to turn the wheel a bit more and change things and kind of disrupt the current political landscape. I mean, if the Liberal Party want to uh, engage more young people and kind of connect with them on a deeper level, that's not as quite superficial as just being at a polling booth and talking to them. I think they're going to have to go to a more policy view instead of the individual politics side. Um, I mean, we saw some pretty horrific smear campaigns in some of the right-wing media. Um, And I think a good example to understand is that the Australian media, particularly a lot of the left-leaning media outlets, made a decision after the 2019 Scott Morrison win that they were actually going to change the way that they do election reporting. They weren't going to lean into that kind of, we're going to attack individual people and their character and scandals that are erupting. As important as they are, I should say, and we're actually going to go towards what voters actually care about and what are the key issues and what are these what are these politicians are going to deliver on or what do they say they're going to deliver on. Um, and I think this year in particular, we saw a massive shift in that And I think the Liberals didn't really heed this warning. They probably should have taken that lesson from Australian media. I think a lot of those outlets are very reflective of what the actual Victorian demographic in particular for this election actually care about. And they even put out calls. What do you care about? What do you want us to cover? What are the main issues that are going to persuade your vote? Um, So I think the Liberal Party could actually take a really good lesson from the way Australian media coverage, particularly left-leaning media outlets, chose to cover this election and sort of go into policy issues and particularly long-term policy issues like we're in an age now where things like climate change and energy prices and housing affordability is massive particularly for that young gen y gen z population coming through so if you're going to make policy decisions don't just make immediate ones make ones that are going to affect people for a long time to come and make you have trust in them and they can put their faith in you and say okay i trust you to lead me into the next decade or two decades whatever it is tilly i think you're right in terms of the Liberal Party in Victoria potentially not picking up on the lessons that they could have. There was an election earlier on this year that saw um, a long-term Conservative government removed from um, the government benches in Canberra. Uh, I think somewhat ironically the report into that election campaign is due to come out today or potentially tomorrow, so not quite in time for the Victorian Liberal Party to have a quick scan uh, and adjust their settings before the election. But I think a key question for the Liberal Party here in Victoria and potentially broadly across Australia as well is who are they speaking to? So Conservative Party is traditionally 
um, look at progress with a very, very steady hand. And the generations that they have predominantly been speaking to are the older generations. So the, the silent generation and uh, the baby boomers as well are the key generations that they've been speaking to. And we've seen long-term conservative governments in Australia quite recently because they were the dominant voting bloc. We've now seen a significant change in the dominant voting bloc. The largest voting contingent in Victoria at this election was Generation Y, so people in their late 20s and 30s, and they are looking for something different. They actually are engaging with their political parties to drive into the policies settings that they're bringing to elections. And I think that when they look into the Liberal Party's offering at this election, they were found wanting. The Liberal Party weren't looking to connect with those groups. They weren't engaging with the policies that they were looking to see. And so they lost those votes. Interestingly enough, we saw a significant swing against the Labour Party, but we saw that here in Victoria in the western suburbs in seats that had substantial margins uh, to the Labour Party. And so they didn't lose those seats. The electoral uh, dial wasn't impacted. And the Liberals didn't make the gains they needed to in what used to be traditional uh, liberal heartlands uh, in the inner east um, and eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And so I think they'll have to review exactly who they're speaking to and also importantly who is doing the listening and who is doing the speaking. I think it's long overdue in uh, the Victorian Liberal Party they looked at a change in leadership style and potentially a change in the gender of the leader as well but certainly a change in the political spectrum that that leader is looking to engage with. I think they've run the far-right experiment to the end. I think it's proven to not be successful, and they've lost the middle ground to Labor, who's then flanked on the left by some um, increasing uh, progressive political parties in Victorian Parliament. And so if they're going to become relevant again in four years' time, they're going to have to select a leader that takes back that middle ground, that speaks to the larger voting blocks of Gen Ys, Gen Xs, and they're going to have increasingly large numbers of Gen Zs at the voting, polling booths in four years' time as well. There we go. A great forecast for the things that are ahead. Thank you very much, Jeremy and Tilly, for your time today. And thank you all of those of you who are listening. If you found today's episode either entertaining or insightful, make sure that you subscribe to Marks and Alexander Explains on your podcast platform of choice or via our YouTube channel. And if a topic or theme that you'd like us to cover in the future, let us know by leaving a comment or a review. Until next time, this is Gordon signing off from Victoria, still the greatest place to be.